You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. If you have your Bibles, let's go to uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. And you can write these scriptures down, but I'm going to read them and then we're going to go over what God has for us tonight. Are you excited? Yes. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Someone say, what's right? What's right? There's only one stipulation to this. You have to know what it's saying, right? It says here in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Romans 15, verse 4, and if I'm going to read these fast so you can just write them down. Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. Someone say teach us. Teach us. And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Tonight I want to um, kind of set the tone for our Bible study the next eight weeks. We're going to go through the Scriptures systematically, taking different parts of the genres of our Bible, and we're going to work through them uh, bit by bit. We talked about Old Testament law. We, who was here when we talked about Old Testament law a couple weeks ago? But this evening we're going to talk about Old Testament narrative. And by Old Testament narrative, I'm talking about the books of the Bible in the Old Testament that are narratives. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Esther, right? First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and we're going to go through, and we're going to talk about how to handle these verses. How many? Uh, I'm more of a New Testament guy. My area of concentration in, in, in seminary is New Testament, but at the same time, the Old Testament is a very, very interesting book. How many say you favor the Old Testament over the New? Anybody here? You say I love the Old Testament. Anyone love the Old Testament? Anyone love it? All those stories in there. How many of you have ever read the Old Testament and thought to yourself, what am I reading? I don't, I don't understand this. How can I get more out of it? Anyone want that? You want to do it tonight? You want to get more out of it tonight? All right. Okay, a narrative is this. is a literary form characterized by time, action, and settings, and it has a plot. Okay? So, when you look at the Old Testament, have you ever wondered to yourself, maybe, why is it that God doesn't just tell us what he's saying. God doesn't just write it down and say, this is how you're supposed to live your life. You look in the Old Testament and you notice that maybe um, you have to read the lives of Samson, you have to read the lives of Ruth, you have to read the lives of Esther, you have to read the lives of all these people that do good things and do bad things, they make mistakes, they do this, they go through this, and you're wondering sometimes, is they right or are they wrong? Are they the good person or are they the bad person? Why can't just God tell us what he means? Why does God have to use stories like this? I'll tell you, I've felt that way many times. But over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. And you'll see that the narrative is the way that God had in his special plan to communicate more than just... Uh, stories to us, but truths about himself, truths about our lives, and truths about the redemptive history of mankind. And it's how the Holy Spirit has inspired his writers to write the story of redemption. 
But there's a specific way that we can handle it, and there's meaningful things that we can do to pull out from this. Uh, some of the most precious jewels that we can get, and I can tell you, when you get this down, the Old Testament will be in your life a source of truth. And the reason I'm trying to teach this is because in this day and age, it is so important that we defend what's true. Do you believe that? Amen. I was praying, I know in my heart that I think that as we continue, we're going to realize that we are in a war of ideals, especially in America. Truth is being contested and we're wondering today through secular humanism and postmodernism, is there even truth? Can truth be discovered? And so I told the Lord that I, in my ministry, I will defend the truth and the way to defend the truth is make people aware of truth. I don't have to go out there and talk about all the false religions and pick them apart. All I have to do is give to you what the truth is and when you know the truth, you'll be able to find out the counterfeit. People that study money don't study every type of counterfeit money. They study a true dollar bill. And when they see a counterfeit, they can say it doesn't look like the truth, right? Amen. So when I give to you how to study the Old Testament, when people come in, you can say, that's not the truth. I learned the truth. Amen. Amen. And so I want to teach you how to think. Let me give you a quote, okay? This quote is very powerful, and I decided I wanted to read it tonight. It's about the difference of being informed and the difference of thinking for yourself. All right? You ready for this? To be informed is to know simply that something is the case. To be enlightened is to know in addition what it is all about, why it's the case, what its connections are with other facts, in respects it, and, and, and what respects it is the same, in what respects it is different, and so forth. Now listen to this. The distinction is familiar in terms of the differences between being able to remember something and being able to explain it. If you remember what an author says, you have learned something from reading him. If what he says is true, you've learned something about the world. But whether it is a fact about the book or a fact about the world that you have learned, you've gained nothing but information if you've only exercised your memory. You have not been enlightened. Enlightenment is achieved only when in addition to knowing what an author says, you know what he means and you know why he says it. So a lot of times you read the Bible and you say, Jesus says, love your enemies as yourself. But you think to yourself, you go repeat it. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. But you're only informed that that's what Jesus had to say. You are not enlightened until you understand why he said that. Why is the, what is the situation? What is the context to which he said that? And you look at this massive wealth in the Old Testament. And you say to yourself, over 30 books, why did Ezekiel say what he said? Why did the writers write it this way? And so the question is tonight, can we become from being informed like they teach us in, in, in Sunday school about Jonah and the whale, Moses? And can we go from being informed to enlightened to knowing why the author was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this? Amen. Who wants to be enlightened? You walk, you know, people that are informed, they spit out information and they become legalistic in their approach. Mm -hmm. They give you a bunch of rules, but they can't tell you why they subscribe their lives to those rules. And there's no life in that person. But a person that is enlightened, there's something about that person. They beam with truth. Their speech is radiant, and when they talk, life is produced. Amen. And I see too many Christians that, yes, they love God, but they don't know what they're saying. They're on Facebook every day, amen? amen. Okay, so you say, what are the pros to God writing in narratives. And you can write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, narratives are interesting. How many find out a story is interesting, right? Narr Old Testament narratives are interesting. I mean, 
some of the stories, a guy stabbing a king with a sword and him being so overweight that his hand sinks into the, be the belly of that king. Some of this stuff, it was in a movie. You wouldn't be able to take kids to see it. You could take your kids to see Passion of the Christ. They'll cry all the way at night, you know. If they wait till they get to a certain age. Narratives depict real life and they're easily relatable. How many of you have ever read the story of, uh, of Ruth and felt like you could relate somehow even though there was such a time gap between Ruth and us? You as a female could relate to Ruth or you as a man wanted to be someone as pious and bold as Boaz, right? You relate to these stories. Or narratives are holistic, which means that we see a character struggling. We see him doing wrong before the Lord, and yet, while we're reading the story, we see how he corrects himself before God, right? And you automatically relate to it. Uh, but the cons of it, they're also ambiguous, right? Things that are maybe hidden in that story you can't get just through a casual reading. You also find that you may get enthralled with the story as a narrative and think this is a really cool story and miss the whole meaning altogether. How many of you have ever read a story and thought, now what was the point of all that? You know, one of the, right? One of the stories that, I, I don't, we're not going to have a time to talk about it, but you find it in 1 Kings chapter 13, the story of the young and the old prophet. Seems to make no sense. You have a young prophet that goes tells the king, Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, that his kingdom is going to come to an end. He prophesies it to him. The Lord tells his young prophet, when you're in the kingdom, don't eat. You're in Jerusalem. Don't sleep. Just go there, prophesy, and come back. Well, all of a sudden, the old prophet hears from one of his children that there was a young prophet that prophesies this to the king. And the old prophet sends the guy to go fetch him. He brings the, prophet back to the, old, the young prophet back to the old prophet. And the old prophet tries to get the young prophet to eat. The young prophet says, no, I can't eat. The Lord told me not to eat. And the old prophet says, no, 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 I'm a prophet. I saw a vision from the God. I saw an angel come say that he's releasing you from this. And the young prophet says, really? Okay. And he eats. And then he puts him on his horse and he goes down. And the old prophet says to him before he leaves, you're going to die now because you disobeyed the word of God. Then all of a sudden he's going and a lion jumps, pounces the man, kills him, doesn't eat his body, just takes the life out of him, doesn't touch his donkey. And the old prophet sends his son to go find him. And he finds the man sitting there dead. What's the point of this? <laughs> and then the Bible says, and yes, Rehoboam's kingdom was stripped from him. And you think to yourself, what is the meaning of all this? And I was looking at that verse this week, and there's actually a very profound significance to it that we can't get into this evening. But how many would like to get into it at some point, right? Sounds like, the, what's the point? There is a point, trust me. Um, then there's always people that want to take the Old Testament, they want to allegorize it and make it say something that it's not. How many of you know people that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, right? The ark means Jesus. The cord on Rahab's garment means Jesus. And the tabernacle, every single intricate thing about the tabernacle is pointing to Jesus. And the dove is the Holy Spirit. Everything is something that is not. And you can really confuse yourself in the Old Testament if you allegorize it, right? But I think that we can take an approach to this and we can find out the actual meaning of the Old Testament and do some fun exercises tonight before we're done and really get some meaning from it. Sound good? Okay, three levels that I want you to look at. When you're reading the Old Testament, there's three levels that you should look at. Three types of ways of reading it. You guys are taking notes. You guys are you guys enjoying this so far? Is that okay? Everyone enjoying it? Okay, number one. This is the third level. The third meaning of the Old Testament. So no matter what you're reading, you can read it at this level and find truth at this level. And that is the third level, which has to do with the whole universal plan of God worked out through creation, focusing primarily on God's chosen people. So it's God's work in creation 
focusing on his chosen people. In the Old Testament, who did he choose? Israel, right? So in the Old Testament, you don't see God working so much with the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Mosquito Bites. You see God working with Israel. In creation, the fall of humanity, the power of sin, the need for redemption, and the aspects of Christ prophesied all fall into this. And then in the New Testament, you see it again, but we want to focus in the Old Testament. So you see this overall picture of God working with Israel. At the second level, you see God redeeming the people for His name. So you see how God is working His redemptive plan through the Messiah. So you see this through Abraham. You see it through Abraham's covenant. You see it through God's uh, being with them and, and, and the enslavement in the book of Exodus, their conquest through the land. You see the fall, uh, God uh, pleading with them to be obedient. You see the destruction of the northern kingdom, Judah, all this, right? Amen. And then there's the first level which everybody loves, and that is the individual stories of the Bible characters. I love reading the story of Joseph. I love reading the story of, uh, of Jacob and Esau. And You see this, but what's important is that what we need to do is keep in mind all these levels at one time. Because when you look at just the smaller picture, just what God is doing in Joseph's life, you know what happens? You miss the big picture. When you look at the big picture and you don't look at the small picture, you don't see how God is working His plan. And so to have a healthy understanding of the Old Testament, no matter what story you're reading, always keep in mind, yes, right now I may be reading about Haggai, but at the same time, yes, he went, you know, you, you might be reading the story about Hosea, yes, he went and married a prostitute. So you say, well, you know, some people say, well, God wants me to marry a prostitute. No, no, no. What? This has to do with the big picture. So you keep the big picture in mind when reading the small picture. And when you're reading the small picture in mind, you keep the big picture in mind. Sound good? Alright. So, are you all here tonight? Okay. When it comes to Old Testament narrative, there are a few aspects that is very important to pay attention to in order to gain the meaning of the Old Testament. Because each narrative in itself, each story, has a series of similarities in it. The very first similarity that I want to talk to you about is the narrator. This is the author. This is the person who is telling the story. So, in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, you have Moses, you have Samuel, you have David who wrote the Psalms, and Nathan who wrote part of Samuel. And the narrator's job is to convey the meaning to the readers through the story. And the thing about it that can make this frustrating is the narrator, a lot of time, does not tell you everything that he knows. He gives you bits and pieces and fragments about the story. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you want to stick your hand through the Bible and grab the person that's telling the story and say, Tell me more about this! But... If you understand Hebrew and you understand how things were written, they are usually telling it to you, just not putting it in front of your face. Because the way that you tell a joke, if I have to explain a joke to you, is it a joke anymore? The purpose, when, when, when someone tells you the punchline, are they really telling you what they mean? They're telling you the joke and you get it. You get what they're saying. The parables of Jesus are very similar. Jesus you know, the parables, 
really shouldn't have to be explained. You should get what they're saying. And the reason we don't get what the parables are saying is because we're not familiar with the historical context that they're told in, and we're not informed with the literary context, what he means by what he's saying. And the, New Te- the Old Testament is quite similar. Much of the Old Testament we're going to see in a minute is irony, and the narrator is using irony to tell the story, and if you can just observe the details, you will get the irony of it, right? Okay, so um, you'll discover that uh, sometimes the narrator gives his viewpoint, and sometimes the view is conveyed by one of the characters. But often, you'll discover that the narrator likes to stay neutral. So, basically, he doesn't convey, uh, and his opinions are not usually found in the story. And the stories kind of have a way of speaking for themselves, right? David and Uriah. Does, it, does, does the uh, New Testament, does, Test, does Samuel, who's writing this book, really have to say much about David? <coughs> All you have to do is find out that he was on a rooftop looking at a married woman, a married man's wife while the married man is in battle. And um, you'll discover that um, there's no need for the narrator to really say much. Am I right? right? Let me give you an example for this. If you have your Bible, let's go to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Let's find out how it's being used here. Are you guys here tonight? We have Supernatural coming up next Friday. Anyone excited about that? Judges 21-25 says something very interesting. And all it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This is a massive understatement by the writer. Very massive understatement because you'll discover in the book of Judges, it wasn't just people not doing what was right in their own eyes. It was complete chaos. The Israel was not killing the Canaanite like God told them to do. Other nations had moved in. Um, They weren't killing the other inhabitants of the land. They were marrying them and moving in with their gods. They were turning to other gods. They were leaving Jehovah. And the Levites had led the tribe of Dan into pagan worship. An Israelite uh, town tried to rape a priest and molested the priest's concubine. This is how morally degraded Israel was during the time of the judges. And all the narrator stops saying is everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes. And you think to yourself, what are you talking about? If you were the narrator, you'd put them on blast, right? You would say, let me tell you what it was like. Back in those days, everyone was wicked. God should throw everybody in hell, blah, blah, blah. But there is a finesse to the Old Testament. Let me show you what happens in Judges chapter 19, verse 22. Let me give you the background of the story. In Judges, an, Is- uh, an Israelite mob in Gabeah threatens to molest, like I just said, a Levitical priest and shouts, to the man protecting him. And this is what he says. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, 
Bring out the man who came into your house that we may sleep with him. This is Judges now. This is not Genesis 19. This is Judges 19. Does this remind you of any story in the Old Testament? What story does this remind you of? As a matter of fact, the language is strikingly so similar that the author, without saying it, is putting in there irony to let you know the situation in Israel was just like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're reading this and you catch this, it automatically triggers a question in your mind. Who was Sodom and Gomorrah? They were unclean Canaanites, Amorites. They were not the people of God. And what happened to them? They were destroyed. But Gibeah is a town in Israel, in the promised land, where judges reigned. And now the language is saying they were like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So guess what the language is saying now? They're going to be destroyed just the same for their actions. Or it makes you ask a question. Should they be destroyed by their actions? And do you see how? We don't even notice it because we just go right over it. Did that make sense to anybody? Raise your hand if it made sense to you if I'm, I'm, I'm playing with you. Does that make So the indirect comment highlights an obvious parallel between the people of Gabeah and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in a way that indirectly addresses it. And so the question becomes, what does Israel now have? To stay in the promised land. That God won't kick them out. And it leads you into the mercy and the grace of God. And it leads you back to the covenant that God made with one man that had faith. And that's Abraham. And that goes to solidify the power of God's covenant. Even when we're not faithful, He alone is faithful. Isn't that interesting? And there it is in the writing for you. Okay, did you guys get that? Okay, the next thing I want to talk to you about is scene. How many of you have ever watched sitcoms before? You know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Full House, Family Matters. You know which one I watch? I'm guilty of it, I'm sorry. It's King of Queens. I watch that show all the time. I sit on the couch and be watching King of Queens and have to turn it off to go to bed or do something, get in the Bible or something, right? <laughs> Good old Doug. <laughs> But you know what you notice about a good sitcom? It has the ability to move from scene to scene to scene. I was watching it the other night, right? If you listen to the podcast, you don't like King of Queens, I repent, I'm sorry. Just You see how they move. First, they're in Doug's apartment. They're in the kitchen. Him and his wife are fighting. Upset, yelling and screaming at each other. But it doesn't follow Doug everywhere he goes. Then the scene shifts. And now with his, his father-in-law's in a coffee shop. Then all of a sudden the scene shifts. And all of a sudden you go, and now you find that... Uh, Doug and his wife are in the bedroom arguing. Then the scene shifts and Doug's at IPS working with his friend Deacon and they're taking boxes and putting them on a car. And this whole time, scenes are telling you the story. He's at IPS. He's in his bedroom. He's in the basement. Dun, 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 dun. This is how good narrative is put together. And every scene in that show has meaning inside of it all in of itself. You could watch that one scene and say, oh, they're, not, they're mad at each other, they're fighting. Doug's in the doghouse because he went and played basketball with his friends and he didn't show up to carry his party. But then you go to the next scene, you find something just as much meaning, but when you put them all together, you get a big picture. This is how God has written the Old Testament, scene by scene by scene. 
And all we have to do is when we're reading a story, we discover a scene. Would you like to see an example? Yes. So write this down if you're taking notes. When you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading a story, one way that we're going to see in just a minute is how to discover the Old Testament in scenes. Look at the scenes of the Old Testament. I hope I'm not boring you tonight. You know, come, come in two Fridays, we'll be praying for the sick and splashing oil all over everyone. Amen. Raising the dead and casting out devils. I'm doing a series on the heart. God has told me to, to minister to people about transformation of the heart. God told me, uh, or, or ministered to me, that when you go into church services, you don't see people crying anymore. You see people arrogant and proud. They don't want to get on their hands before God and get on their knees and cry before worship. People, they want God to transform, but they don't want to spend any time in prayer. They want to go and, and ask God to touch their family, but they don't want to pray for their families. It means that there's a transformation of the heart that needs to take place. And God spoke to me and says, there's a circumcision of the heart that needs to happen. People need to get the layers of flesh cut off their heart so it could be sensitive to them again. Amen. That's why churches need in America. As people come in and we got this speaker, we got that speaker, you know, we have this smoke light, we have this fog machine. But you know what they don't have? They don't have the presence of God. And that's because people's hearts are in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. That's a plug for my service on Friday. So come on out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be happy to. I like going back and forth. You know, if you ask, some people say, do you like teaching better or do you like preaching better? I say, it depends on the night. <laughs> you know, I like teaching though. It's fun. Let's talk about Genesis 37, the story of Joseph. How many like Joseph, the story of Joseph? You know, that's the longest narrative in the whole Bible. I remember when I was a kid, I used to read Joseph. I'd think, is this story ever going to end? This story just drags on. Genesis 37, the story of Joseph. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. We all know the story. Scene number one. Joseph squeals on his brothers, right? Joseph goes and he talks to his dad all about his brothers and his dad now favoring Joseph. Scene number two, Joseph then recounts the dream that he has and tells you his dreams. So when you look at it, I know it would help to read it, but you've you got to be with me. So the first thing you see Joseph schooling on his brothers, telling his dad all the bad his brothers do. Then the scene shifts, and now Joseph is in a different setting, and he's telling his brothers and his dad about a dream that he had. His dad and his brothers think to themselves, oh, he didn't just say that, you're going to rule over us? And then scene number three comes. Joseph is searching for his brothers, but he can't find them. This is easy for a director if he's shooting a movie. He just scene to scene to scene. Scene number four, Joseph's brothers conspire and throw him in a pit. Scene number five, Joseph is sold to the caravan at Ishmaelite. Scene number six, Joseph's brothers come up with a plan to hide Joseph's enslavement. Scene number seven, the Midianites sell Joseph to Egypt and Potiphar. All of them are not happening in one chronological order, there's time, gaps, in between each and every one of them. And so what you can do when you're studying the Word of God is get involved in the scene. Pick a scene that you like. You say to yourself, well, I like the scene where Joseph is looking for his brothers. Go into that scene. Pull as much detail out as you can. Make as many observations as you can. How would you feel if you were looking for his brothers? Would you feel they abandoned you? Would you have maybe feelings of remorse that maybe, oh, I can't find her now. They don't want to hang out with me. Maybe I shouldn't have told them my dream. And in each and every scene, you'll find that there is significance in it. Okay? Number three, setting. Each narrative in the Bible has a setting. Do you know that many people in... Uh, that are reading the Bible, they miss out on huge 
jewels because they don't know what's going on in the setting. How about we talk about Ruth? How many of the girls, and the excuse me, women? My editor got really mad at me when I first started writing because I would say girl and she would put in woman. Woman, not girls. You're not in, high, you're not in elementary school anymore, right, women? i never make that mistake again. I, I promised I wouldn't. She'd come from Missouri and shoot me. How many women like the story of Ruth? Okay. Now, this is not just for the women. I know guys, you don't really hear men doing men conferences in the book of Ruth. It's not just for women, though. This isn't women's ministry. God wouldn't write in the Bible and say, well, we need a book of the Bible for women's conferences. So let's put Ruth in there. But there's a lot in there. Well, the very first verse and chapter of Ruth is chock full of power. Let me read it to you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. That has a lot in there. Can anyone tell me maybe what in there is, is kind of interesting? Well, how about this? It says, in the days when the judges ruled. What did I just tell you about the judges? Well, the judges ruled, but what about, come on, the book of Judges, I just went over with you guys. Huh? They were trifling. Is that the Latanya version of the Bible? The LSV, the Latanya Standard Version. Let's just say it like this. In the days when the judges ruled, it was trifling, and there was a famine in the land, right? So you know that this land was trifling, it was bad, it was miserable, there was sexual immorality, there was thieves and stealing. It was like going into some... Which, what, what country is terrible right now in that war? It's like going over the Middle East. It's bad. <coughs> Women getting raped. Men doing the raping. Killing. The value of life is not the way we see in America. We respect life. You kill someone, you're doing life. In Rome, you kill someone, eh, give me a few mules and a few oxen, we'll call it even. It was like that. It was a very bad time. So knowing that, what implications can you draw from Ruth right when you start reading the story? How about this? You see Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, traveling from the land of Moab all by themselves. Brett, did you let your darling wife travel all by herself to the streets of Detroit? Of course not. So now you see here, wait, wait. So you have Naomi and Ruth making a dangerous sojourn from their native land to the land of Israel. What does that tell you about them? They were strong. They were strong. Maybe they had a lot of faith in God that he was going to protect them. Maybe Ruth was convinced this is the will of God, that I leave my land, your God will be my God, I'm coming with you. And God will protect us and we'll find out. What application can you draw from that? How about, it was dangerous for Ruth to be in the field all by herself with a whole bunch of men. These were not godly men, people. I know we see that this is Israel, but I remember I used to work at a, uh, a place uh, when I was in college where we did a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of heavy boxes, and you were around guys that were blue-collar. It's really no different with white-collar workers. It's men. It's like being at the gym in the locker room. Every day, locker room stories. Every day, they wake up 6 o'clock in the morning. Their minds are on the same things. Now notice like, and here you have a widow, broken, lost her husband, poor, pretty, 
following men gleaning in the field and she was at their beck and mercy. It's no wonder if it wasn't for the, the protection of God, she probably would have been raped. What's that say about the faithfulness of God when he calls you? You can preach all that just by knowing that it was in the time of Judges. How about the fact that she finds Boaz? Who is Boaz? A pious, righteous, zealous man that loved God. This would be extremely unusual in the land of the Judges to find somebody as righteous and as godly as Boaz. All the women went, oh, oh. You mean in America where there's all this bad stuff going on? There's a Boaz for you? There's a Boaz somewhere. A lot of implication we can draw just from knowing that it was during the time of the judges. And who was Boaz? Boaz, who's, who's, whose son was he? Rahab's. His mom was a prostitute. We're going to find out more about that as we go on. So the setting is very important, right? How about the next part of Old Testament narrative? Is this interesting to you guys? Are you sure? Okay, the next thing is the characters. You can't have a story without the characters, right? Think about your favorite Star Wars movie, Chewbacca, yeah? Darth Vader. Any Star Wars fans here? Lord of the Rings fans here? X-Men, Marvel Comics, all the kids. Spider-Man cam, right? Yeah, and he's like, now he don't act like he don't like Spider-Man. He's dressed like it the other day. Just teasing. <laughs> You gotta have characters. Well, I'm telling you, there's some Old Testament characters that are quite interesting. The characters are the central element of the story and they move the plot forward and it's because there is usually some type of conflict. And though we desire to know uh, all about these characters, there's, very, there's not much really ever told about all the characters. As a matter of fact, Old Testament writers did not like to talk to you about how a character looked. That's why there's, there's why there's not a lot of description on, on a character's look. I mean, you know David was ruddy, you know uh, Saul was tall, but you don't hear a lot of emphasis on how one looks. That's because that would have detracted from the story. It was more about what they've gotten themselves into. And so they would give you critical pieces of the story. And so let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 real quick. You don't see all the details. Especially when the characters are in conflict with each other. Second Samuel is the story of David and Uriah, which I'm referring to tonight. And David has done something terrible. David knew that his lead man, Uriah, was out to battle. And David was pondering his wife, lust in his own heart. And what did he do? He had an affair with her. In order to cover it up, what did he do? He put Uriah on the front lines and he was killed, right? So Uriah's blood was on David's hands because he had no reason to do that and his motive was wrong. So when David says to Uriah, he conceives a plan. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell Uriah that, listen, you fought hard in battle. Why don't you go home and be with your wife? Because he wanted Uriah to sleep with her and he wanted him to think that he had conceived his child to get him off the line so when he sees his wife's pregnant he hadn't been with his wife he would know some other man has been with the wife and when the kid comes out looking like David he's going to know what happened so David said you go home and you sleep with your wife the question I'm wondering though is did Uriah know what David was doing because Uriah knows order of rank 
He's not going to tell David, you're sleeping with my wife. Because if you've ever had a boss, how many know that you just don't tell your boss he's wrong? Because your boss can cut your pay. Play ignorant. Make life miserable for you. So it would require a lot of wisdom to answer that kind of question. So the Bible doesn't tell us if Uriah knew or not. But let me ask you this, men that are married here. If perhaps you thought something was going on, do you think that you might have some type of godly intuition that something is not right in your family? I think they say that the grace of life that God gives us that we usually know when something's not right. I mean, you know, I was at my house on Sunday. I knew something wasn't right. I hadn't taken the trash out. If I can know I hadn't taken the trash out, surely you can know when your wife's fooling around. So look at what Uriah's answer to David was. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As you live and as your son live, I will do no such thing. What do you think he really told David? This is not a time for me to be intimate with my wife, to be thinking about eating and drinking and fulfilling. Which eating and drinking and being married doesn't just mean eating and drinking. It means the, uh, gorging myself with the pleasures of the flesh. This is a time for the men in Israel to be at war. You know what I think David... He wasn't stupid. You know what he probably did? He probably went and said, Does he know? Is he accusing me without saying? Is he being is he being ambiguous? And you know what? If that's the case, David would be in fear, concerned. It would make him all the more feel the pains of his sin. But do you know what? The Old Testament writer never tells you if this is the case or not. He leaves it up to your imagination and understanding and I think he does that on purpose to get you thinking about it at least thinking about it whether it be the case or not does that make sense to you okay then there's always the plot the beginning the beginning the middle and the end which focuses on a buildup of dramatic tension that's released and usually the plot is thrust forward with conflict and generates interest in some type of resolution there are three uh, of course um I won't go over plot. You get the basic idea. You'll, you, you will usually see the plot is being laid out. Actually, Genesis chapter 6, you know, it'll tell you that in the land during those days that it was wicked and God had repented that he'd made man. That's the exposition. He's telling you what's about to happen. Then you'll see that there is a conflict, which means that there's disorder and chaos, and you'll start to see that as Genesis 6 progresses, you'll see that there's the sons of God were upon the earth during that time, the daughters were, were sleeping with the daughters of men, whatever the sons of God may have been, whether they be fallen angels or the ungodly uh, race of Cain, uh, Seth, or whatever theologians believe it is. But it turns into some type of wickedness, and you don't see the resolution of this until after Noah's flood. So it's important to read all the way through and see how once there is a conflict that's generated, how it comes to an end, okay? All right. I'm going to skip over some things here. And um, I want to talk to you about, uh, let's see here. Are you enjoying this tonight? Comparison and contrast. Usually what a lot of Old Testament writers like to do is they like to take characters and put them in conflict with each other. You know, today we have a, 
a lot of uncreative ways of writing and you ask what makes great writing and you know they'll teach you in writing class that the more ambiguous you can be and the more forceful you can get your point across is probably best the less you have to say is best if you can know how to say it without saying it that's really good it makes very intelligent writing and the the old testament is really good at this and one of the most uh, important examples of this is found in first samuel chapter 9 in the story of Saul and David. And you'll see that most of 1 Samuel is the story of Saul and David in conflict with each other. Saul and David just can't get along, right? Like two older brothers. They just keep fighting, fighting, fighting. Not older brothers, but two, two brothers. Just keep fighting. And um, But look how Samuel was introduced. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bikorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man of the people of Israel more handsome than him. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. So what do we know about Saul now? He's tall. He's good looking. He's handsome. He's the cover of GQ. He's got Calvin Klein ads. Got a professional Facebook picture. Amen. Goes to glamour shots every six months. Looks good in jeans. Right, ladies? This is Saul. And he's taller than everybody in the land. And then you find David. David was not even brought up to Samuel because his youth and his unimposing size. Yeah, we have uh, another guy, but we keep him in the garage. You know? <laughs> Oh, you mean that guy? Yeah, well, you know, we got him down in the basement over there. You know, we slide his food under the door for him. We cut off slices of lunch meat and slide it under the door, and that's how we feed him. Keep him in a cage and let him out to walk around. So this is how they're introduced. One's of richness, and the other one is stepchild. Then you see the contrast again. The giant wants to send forth their champion to fight. Come and send somebody, send me a champion, send somebody, send somebody out to fight me. Send somebody out to fight me, blah, 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 blah. And so, who do you think was supposed to go fight him? The tall one, the king, the champion. Who is the champion of Israel? The king. This is the one that Sam, they didn't want a king. Israel said, we don't want it. Israel said, we want a king. And God says, you don't want a king. Trust me, he'll put you in slavery. He'll take you back to Egypt. And he says, we want a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a champion. I'm going to give you the biggest, tallest champion of all. I'm going to give you Saul. And then Saul tries to buy his way out because inwardly he's a coward. And so what does he try to do? He says, you know what, if anybody wants to go take this giant down and cut his head off, I'll give you my daughter. His daughter's like, what? No, Dad. And then David, the short, red-headed stepchild. Sorry, redheads. He comes in and says, I'll fight him. But notice this. Do you think that it's possible that the writer could tell you that even though Saul was the tallest, even though Saul was the king, maybe something's ironic going on here. Maybe... The Lord gave me this revelation one time. I want you to catch this. This is kind of, kind of. I asked God about wicked leaders, people that do unrighteous things. Sometimes I see, and I have no ability to judge a person's heart, but generally it's true that there have been people that have 
gained massive followings religiously who led the people astray. You think because of their size and the amount of followers they have and the, the brevity of their ministry or their political rule that God put these people in power. And the Lord told me one time that it's not always God that puts people in power. A lot of times people put people in power. That many of the people that stand in power are the people's champion. It's not God's champion. And a lot of times that after the people have been hurt, God will, if the people are sorrowful, raise up a champion. After they've been abused. And so when the people asked God for a king, God allowed the people to have their king and he gave them Saul. But when God says, I got to restore Israel from the atrocities of Saul, he rose up David. Is there anything in the Old Testament that would indicate this? Perhaps in the area of conflict. Well, look at this. When Saul is introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 9, are you guys finding this interesting tonight? In 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul is introduced this way, looking for his father's donkeys. He can't find them and wants to quit and go home. And then when they encounter Samuel, he doesn't even recognize Samuel as a man of God or a prophet because he's just that spiritually inept. And then he's looking for his donkey and he doesn't know what to do, so he depends upon the instinct of his servant because he's not good at leadership. So basically you see a tall, bumbling, fumbling oaf looking for donkeys. That's how they introduced the king. But how was David introduced? A shepherd. Kind, compassionate, looking over sheep. And when one is about to be taken, he goes and rips it out of the mouth of a lion, rips it out the mouth of a bear. He's a humble, not good looking, not from wealth. But if a lion comes, he destroys it. If a bear comes, he destroys it. And then he's seen in his first conquest beating up a giant, having the boldness to say, I don't need that. I'm going to take slingshots and be, and be resourceful and beat this king up. Look at the contrast of the introductions and tell me who is the people's champion and who is God's champion. But you miss it if you don't look at contrast. How is an author pitting the people against each other? Is that interesting to you tonight? Is it interesting to anyone? Okay, let's look at the big story. Someone say, look at the big story. One of the most important things to do in the Old Testament is to remember... You okay tonight? Everybody good? Everybody smile? Okay. It's to remember that, like I said before, it's important we look at a big story. For instance, I want to go back to David and Uriah because I've been talking about this all night. When you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 12, you'll discover that David committed sin. Nathan the prophet goes in, points at David, and says, you're the man. David says, oh my God. I'm the man. I've committed this atrocious sin. This is terrible. Oh, what do I need to do? And he goes on a fast. And his child dies. Child dies. David mourns. And then he gets up and he goes to eat. Because he says, what good is mourning going to do? And God forgives him. And he's repentant. Right? Now, <clears throat> we can gain from this story in and of itself that God is merciful. That God is gracious. That God is compassionate and God forgives those. And David wrote psalms that pertain to this. That, uh, you know, one of the psalms that God, that was written was, 
uh, Psalm chapter 51, cleanse me from sin that I may be clean, wash me from the highest up that I may be whiter than snow, show your mercy, your servant compassion. This was the 51st Psalm. Did God forgive David? Did God love David? Okay, when you look at the small story, you will find the kindness and graciousness of God. And you see that his son died. And you see somewhat of the consequence of sin. But I think what this story is trying to tell us here, yes, God's forgiving. But, what about the bigger picture? Did David's sin play a bigger part in a bigger picture? Let's look at the whole story. When you read 2 Samuel chapter 1-10, through 10, you know what you see? The rise of King David. David was like one of these sports teams that comes out of the gun and is winning every game. You ever see a team that starts in the playoffs? I remember, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. Brett's a basketball fan. Jordan's a basketball fan. Oh, the men, right? And sometimes in the NCAA championship, you have this team that comes out and starts blowing teams away. First round, 50-point win. Second round, 20-point win. Third round, 30-point win. Just blowing teams out of the water. This is how David's rise was. Nobody could stand up to King David. Everything David touched, his hands went to gold. But something happens in 2 Samuel, about the 13th chapter. <coughs> Things start going bad for him. David has a son named Absalom. Well, first of all, you see that one of David's sons, Amon, kills Tamar. Then you'll find out, or rapes her. And then you'll find out Absalom kills Amon. And then after that, what you discover is that you see Absalom becomes rebellious against David. And then Absalom ends up getting killed, and David loses his son. And the people stop following David, they start following Absalom. And after all this mess happens, David grieves after his son, even though he's dead and had taken his kingdom from him. And David continues forth, but he never gets his kingdom back to where he could do it. And that's how he died and leaves it to his other son, Solomon. So you go from David being on the up to David being on the down. Slow rise, slow fall. What happened in the middle? David sinned with Bathsheba. So what you see here is that even though David did sin, his sin led to his downfall. How do you apply that? Well, I think in the New Testament, you, you can't, I think that sin has its consequences. This doesn't mean if you sin, you're going to go, you've got, you got nothing but a downfall in your life. That's not necessarily what it means, because we haven't talked about application yet. But what the communicator of the Old Testament is saying is that sin is serious. And sin has consequences, and many times you cannot reverse the consequences. For instance, God, uh, 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 maybe a youth pastor is drinking one day, he's not supposed to be drinking, and he, 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 God will forgive him. But what if he's driving home and he gets into a car accident and kills somebody? God can't reverse that, you're going to stand before a judge. So sin's serious. Amen? But sometimes we miss the bigger picture, we don't look at it that way. Right? So someone say, look at the bigger picture. Now that you've heard the light of today, connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390. Or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly. So make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to the light of today with Chris Palmer.